about the broadcast. Thank you for tuning in through Spotify, iTunes, Podcast Addict, Anchor.fm. If you're watching on YouTube, please click the subscribe button for a subscription and the bell for continued notifications. Uh, thank you for tuning in. We're going to be talking about Sola Scriptura. What is Sola Scriptura and why is it not Biblicism? What is Sola Scriptura and why is it not Biblicism? Before I start the, the conversation or, or the discourse related to that subject, it would probably be um, helpful to make some di- to make some distinctions. Um, the way in which I'm going to be addressing biblicism here, or or the kind of biblicism that that I'm addressing here, is uh, is not what some have recently defined biblicism to mean. So I just want to acknowledge up front that some have decided to try and co-opt and redeem that term. And they do not mean by biblicism what uh, what I'm going to be covering here. Um, biblicism tends to be more of a uh, of a tendency, if that makes sense, rather than something that that people commit to consciously. Um, for example, you know the word arises in the 19th century, but it, it's really been used to characterize uh, the approach of of various heretics to scripture. And if you if you were to call a heretic, you know, somewhat anachronistically, a biblicist, they would have said, "No, I'm not." You know, uh, they would have denied that, and and we would have, of course, wanted to say, if put in that situation, to have a conversation with a heretic. Uh, we would, of course, want to say that, well, well, I know that you don't subscribe to that as a as a you know some kind of a hermeneutical position, but this is your tendency. And this is, functionally, this is how we've observed you approach the text. Okay, so, uh, you know, and this is, I'm going to get more into this here in a moment as I describe the differences between Sola Scriptura and Biblicism, but suffice it to say at present that uh, that Biblicism really is not a, until recently, Biblicism has not been a position that one positively attributes to oneself, but has really seemed to have been, from what I can tell, a tendency to uh, to idolize one's own understanding of the letter of Scripture to the exclusion of accountability structure, uh, the historical Christian faith, uh, swiping kind of all of that away in order to uh, derive their own fancies from the pages of holy writ. And uh, now, if that's the case, we have to understand that, you know, insofar as we all have a sin nature, that that we all have a tendency to do that. Or, or maybe if we don't have a tendency to do that, maybe that's too strong of a term, we are prone to that tendency. Uh, that is, we are prone to, you know, have something that we prefer to be the case. Uh, maybe it's a hobby horse, or maybe it's a a position that uh, that we appreciate and admire, and we want it to be true, so we go and we read it out of the text. It's the classic, you know, kind of eisegesis versus exegesis kind of thing. Um, and, and that that has happened for ages. And um, and with regard to 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 to, to biblicism, um, we have to understand that. You know, it's a it's a tendency that we can all have to to go to the text of Scripture apart from any and every source of accountability, 
and uh, and get from that text our own understanding, our own uh, favorite opinions, and and so on. Um, so, I, I just wanted to preface with 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 some of that, and um, and and some of that will be elaborated upon as we go here. Uh, I uh, <clears throat> have been trying to do some research that uh, narrows down the meaning of biblicism, at least, uh, you know, in, in historical and kind of a, a synchronic uh, sense. And a synchronic definition of a term is, is the definition of a term as it was used at a particular point in time. And so trying to, to narrow down how the term biblicism was used at its inception, and it appears that really at or near its inception, it was being used to uh, to give a negative connotation to those who uh, really preferred their own opinions about what the letter indicated uh, rather than um, <clears throat> uh, lend credence to, you know, historical theology, confessional theology, um, uh, and uh, really the, the accountability structure uh, that God has put in place and has been in place since uh, since the the foundation of the New Testament Church, and uh, it, it's actually quite sparse. Uh, <clears throat> you know, you, you look in something like the Oxford English Dictionary, preferably one you know from the 1970s. My my compact edition is uh, those two massive volumes uh, that that you can. Uh, that you can buy, and, and it basically has just photocopies of, of the non-compact edition, but like minimized to a size that you would need a magnifying glass to see, and there's about six, I think, pages on each page of the compact edition, and so you really, you, you, you kind of need like a ma magnifying glass to see some of that stuff, but uh, the, the OED, in the compact edition or not, is, is one of the most exhaustive... Um, lexical helps in terms of the uh, the English language that there is because it's <clears throat> it was really a, uh, a a modern marvel in terms of its uh, exhaustive approach to etymology and uh, showing the development of terms and so on well because biblicism is so young of a term it it really doesn't have a lot of etymology and 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 because of that you if you want to if you want to see how the word's been historically conditioned, you're very limited, especially with a, a younger term like that one. And so, um, and so, what I've come up with though is that it, it's it's a negatively connoted term, uh, if not used as an insult, uh, used to to seriously imply some things about the persons uh, to which it is applied. Um, let's put it that way. Um, and so, it's it's been a difficult. Uh, kind of road, uh, and and now, you know, to put that all with the, the modern kind of accretions of the sense of that term that, you know, that complicates the issue. So, um, so all of that, so that research, uh, as limited as it is, I, I've, I've compiled into a, an, a paper that I'm going to turn into an article. It'll go up on on the Baptist blog uh, cast. It'll go up on the Baptist broadcast, and will hopefully be useful uh, even for those who disagree with my assessment of biblicism. I, I hope can 
uh, can nevertheless be helped by some of the other resource material that's that's in this article. But uh, the purpose of this this podcast is really just to kind of uh, not really go through this article, but but give a synopsis of it more or less, and and I'll do that by going through the the main headers. Um, one of the first things that I'll do is I'll hit the first header of the article here, which is Sola Scriptura and Biblicism. What's the difference? What's the difference between Sola Scriptura and Biblicism? And to answer this question, we don't have to assume anything negative about Biblicism. We can just assume for, for all intents and purposes that Biblicism is, uh, is something good or something that can be good. And um, and and one of the main differences that I would want to to propose w- we observe uh, is the fact that sola scriptura is a principle, whilst biblicism seems to be uh, a, a an approach, um, kind of a, a an uh, a manner of approach rather than being a a principle from which one approaches the Bible. It is the approach itself. And so we might say that while Sola Scriptura is a principle that governs our hermeneutics, we might want to say that Biblicism is itself a hermeneutic. And I would contend that Biblicism, as it's been conceived in these recent centuries, is a hermeneutic without principles. So whereas Sola Scriptura would give us uh, a principle, uh and uh, or would entail the observation of a principle, uh, biblicism, I think, taken to its consistent end, is a hermeneutic without principle. And if there is principle, uh, then those principles are, in my estimation, inconsistently applied because on biblicism you shouldn't be able to uh, you, on biblicism, you should be able to prove your principles from the text, but if your principles precede your approach to the text, then you can't prove them from the text. That's the nature of a first principle. And so I think biblicism, when, when, when conceived of consistently, kind of bars a person from having any sort of you know, pillar principles by which they approach the text. Sola Scriptura, on the other hand, observes what is called the Principium Cognoscendi of Theologia Vera, which is true theology. Um, and it's the, the Principium Cognoscendi, or the principle of cognition, or the cognitive foundation of, uh, of, of, of the Christian faith, of, of Christian theology, or true theology. Um, now that's not to say it's the it's not the first principle of all things, um, right? It's not. It's obviously not the first principle of, you know, uh, mechanics or something like that. But it's the first principle of true theology, true Christian theology. In other words, revealed theology or or uh, specially revealed theology. Special revelation is the uh, scripture. Is the is is there the principle? Uh, or supernatural theology, we might say. And um, and so, what does that mean? If Scripture is the principle of, of knowledge, it means that Scripture is the source of true theological knowledge, or we might say it's the source of the articles of the faith. That is to say, it is the source from which we know 
the articles of the faith or revealed articles of the faith. Um, Trinity, incarnation, uh, the finished work of Christ, justification by faith alone, uh, go, uh, the gospel ordinances of the church, and so on. All of those things are uh, are derived from Scripture and nowhere else. They're not derived from the traditions of men. They're not derived from natural revelation. They're not derived from my own theological musings and opinions. They are derived from Scripture alone, hence sola scriptura. Sola scriptura means that Scripture is the only principle of all saving knowledge, all specially revealed knowledge. Um, the uh, Second London Baptist Confession of Faith uh, says that uh, the Holy Scripture um, is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience, although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, yet are they not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and his will, which is necessary unto salvation. That first phrase there, the Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, is a phrase that was added to the Second London Confession uh, that does not appear in the Westminster or the Savoy. And it's not that it's, that has, it's not added anything new in substance, but it has added language for the purposes of caution. Um, James Renahan uh, notes that we could summarize that first phrase just for the sake of simplicity and understanding what it's trying to communicate is as, as, as follows. The Holy Scripture is the only certain rule of all saving faith. All right. So that means that, you know, the sufficiency and authority of Scripture has definition. Um, formally, it is sufficient for our saving faith. So, if you know, if we're talking about something that, that doesn't have anything to do with our saving faith or, or isn't the, the articles that, of saving faith, what is to be believed unto salvation, um, then while Scripture might teach on it, uh, other sources teach on it as well, like nature, right? Um, so, it, it, you know, murder is wrong. Uh, you don't have to have faith and apprehend uh, the, uh, you know, special revelation to, to understand that murder is wrong. That is a, a law revealed through nature, per Romans 2.14 and, and so on, which, which really just observes what's already the case. And, and so, uh, you know, there are things that, you know, while the scripture might speak on them, uh, there's yet another authority that speaks on them, which is, which is nature. And it speaks on it just as authoritatively as the Bible does. So if, if murder is wrong and that's revealed through natural revelation, that natural revelation having come from God is just as authoritative as God's own holy word because it, both, of those source, both of those revelations uh, or revelatory sources come from the same being, come from God himself. Um, and so when we're, when we're talking about uh, Scripture and what it's sufficient for, it's sufficient uh, to uh, to uh, pr to provide, as it were, a certain rule of all saving faith to be or serve as a certain rule of all saving faith. And for that reason, we would say that Scripture is the principle of all saving knowledge. So, sola scriptura 
you know, nowadays is kind of understood to be like a blanket term. It just means that, you know, scripture alone for everything. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and what ends up, what ends up happening there is we end up abusing the text of scripture because we end up making it do that which it wasn't intended to do. And we end up driving conclusions as a result that were never intended to be derived by its divine author. And so we have to realize that there's a definition of sola scriptura. It's not just this nebulous kind of like scripture alone for whatever I want scripture to be used for kind of thing. Um, and so I think that's, that's pretty important to, to understand. Um, so the main difference between script, sola scriptura and biblicism is that sola scriptura is a principle. Biblicism is a hermeneutical approach. Um, and on the case of, in the case of biblicism, uh, it doesn't, it, it doesn't, again, there's a lot of ambiguity here because of the many uses of the, of the term, but, but biblicism doesn't, um, biblicism doesn't really exactly set forth, uh, a, a sure model of how to even approach the text. In other words, uh, people have, there are all sorts of different kinds of biblicists who are going to approach the text differently. There's not like a, a set standard again, because to have a set standard, like, for example, an, an interpretive handbook, as the Puritans used to, would, to some biblicists, be a violation of the biblicistic approach. Um, because you would have another uh, authority, so-called, which would be an interpretive handbook that would help you interpret the Holy Bible. And so there's not really been like an accepted biblicist orthodoxy in terms of how to uh, approach the text of Scripture, so it's all the more hard to hard to nail down. Um, I, I did find a helpful list amongst the, uh, the material that Christian Smith has put together. Um, and, you know, he would, I don't believe that Christian Smith is uh, a reform person. I don't even know if he's a Baptist, but I just thought that this list characterizing the modern perception of biblicism was very helpful. Particularly, he, he gives 10 assumptions made by the biblicist. And I found four through six to be most helpful for our purposes here. But remember, when I say assumptions of the biblicist, I mean that these are assumptions really that all of us are prone to, to, to making without question. And, uh, and again, biblicism is more, more so a tendency than a position that someone uh, overtly holds to um, and, and, and consciously subscribes to. It's more of a, it's more of a tendency of uh, it's it's more of a tendency in terms of how we approach the scriptures rather than a, kind of a codified uh, position. But he gives these these three in particular I found very helpful four through six of these these assumptions that he lists out, and, and these three are democratic perspicuity, common sense hermeneutics, and solo solo not sola solo scriptura. Um, democratic perspicuity he defines as, as, as follows. Any reasonably intelligent person can read the Bible in his or her own language and correctly understand the plain meaning of the text. All right, that's democratic perspicuity, what he calls democratic perspicuity. That's one assumption of the biblicist. The other assumption of the biblicist is common sense hermeneutics, and he defines it as follows. Common Sense Hermeneutics states that the best way to understand biblical texts is by reading them in their explicit, plain, most obvious literal sense as the author intended them at face value 
which may or may not involve taking into account their literacy or their literary, cultural, and historical contexts. And then the third is solo scriptura, and he says that that means this. Solo scriptura states that the significance of any given biblical text can be understood without reliance on creeds, confessions, historical church traditions, or other forms of larger uh, theological hermeneutical frameworks, such that theological formulations can be built up directly out of the Bible from scratch. Again, probably everyone listening to this, even people who would consider themselves biblicists, would would deny number six, or, or number three, the third one that I just read, um, and they would say, I don't think that I can just go to the text and, and build out a, a theological formulation from scratch. Um, you know, how arrogant would I have to be to think that? Again, these are tendencies that we are vulnerable to, and it's not always, this isn't always something we're doing conscientiously. Um, now, going through these, just real quick, uh, looking at the first one, democratic perspicuity, uh, it, what it does is it opens the understanding of Scripture to anyone and everyone, uh, not simply the regenerate. All right, so this is a this is a touchstone of biblicism that that Scripture may be read like any other historical literary work, um, and and that really uh, a Holy Spirit kind of hermeneutics is is beside the point. Uh, that a person just you know a, applying the tools that they have at their disposal correctly uh, can read the text and understand the text. doesn't matter if they're regenerate or not. It doesn't matter if they're a Christian or not. The problem is, of course, with this, that God's word is overtly written to his people, overtly written to his people. In fact, if you're just looking at the New Testament alone, uh, the New Testament alone, uh, when you're looking at each individual uh, book, let's say the epistles, for example, all of them are addressed to churches. And if not, they're at least addressed to Christians in the case of Philemon, which even in the interest of, of understanding it canonically was intended for Christ's church. Um, and so when, when you look at scripture, you get the impression that scripture is a churchly document. That is, it is addressed to Christ's church. And this kind of trademark of biblicism here suggests that really, no, the, the Bible is to everybody and everybody can can understand it. When I would want to say, no, the Bible is to God's regenerate people. Sure, there are things that, that can be understood and preached from the text of Scripture that the Holy Spirit will use to change uh, a sinner. Um, and so in that sense, there's there's something that can be understood, yet its understanding is reliant on the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's not just understood uh, by the natural man by himself. All right, so uh, this whole thing that just kind of opens the Bible up to to anybody and every, everyone, I think, forsakes the reality that Scripture is a document given to a spiritually enlightened people. Um it's not just a document that can be understood by any and every reasonably intelligent person, to use the words of Smith. Um, the, the, it seems like, in this reading from the paper here, um, Scripture seems to be spiritually indifferent on that distinctive. Its truth is apprehended by the mere application of the literary scientific tools of textual interpretation, just like Homer's Iliad might be. And so the presence of the Holy Spirit, Christian virtue, 
other Christian voices that might inform how we understand the text seem entirely irrelevant to the task of understanding Scripture. And I think that is, I think that contradicts the, the nature of Scripture itself. The second point is uh, the common sense hermeneutics. And, uh, you know, that states that, you know, uh, the best way to understand biblical texts is by reading them in their explicit, plain, most obvious literal sense. Of course, what's obvious to us is conditioned in us by our culture, right? And so this this is part of the reason why I've made the charge in the past that biblicism gives itself to a certain subjectivity, even though most biblicists understand themselves to be biblical objectivists. They understand themselves to, to approach the scriptures objectively. The problem, however, is that when you when you when you make one of your uh, assumptions in approaching the text, uh, you know I'm going to I'm going to read the text according to its most obvious literal sense. Well, what's obvious to you is not what's obvious to someone two thousand years ago. Uh, believe me, two millennia is a long time. And there are a lot of different cultures involved there. And, and, for, and, and, and what's more is something that's obvious to me in the United States is not necessarily obvious to someone living in Siberia. And so there's, there's, a, there's cultural conditioning that happens. And I think the, the, the kind of specter that sneaks in uh, in Biblicism and haunts all of its subscribees is this kind of looming subjectivism that... Uh, that is there because it doesn't acknowledge or account for cultural subjectivities and, and cultural differences that happen. We need to understand the Bible as a book that transcends cultural differences uh, and a book that can be known notwithstanding what is obvious to me or what is obvious to a person living in Afghanistan, for example. Uh, so this, you know, the, of course it's stated the best way to understand biblical texts is by reading them in their ex in their explicit, plain, most obvious literal sense as the author intended them at face value. Of course, by author is meant the human author. Um, now, why should we think that the text, which is ultimately inspired by God, whose cognitive periphery is infinitely wider than the human author, that the meaning of the text should be limited to the intention of the human author? Um, the meaning of the text needs to be limited to the divine author because the human author could not pos possibly uh, cognitively understood uh, the, the meaning of the words he was inspired to, to write down in their fullness. For example, um, uh, the David, right, the psalmist, uh, did not understand to the extent a New Testament Christian understood his own words. Does that make sense? David did not understand the words he was inspired to write down to the extent that a New Testament Christian does this side of the death, uh, the incarnation, sufferings, and glories of our Lord. Um, and so to, to limit meaning to... Again, this gives way to a certain kind of subjectivism because, really, it's anybody's best guess as to what the original human author meant or intended. Um, and, and, and cultural discoveries through archaeology come along all the time that suggest, oh, maybe they meant something completely different than how we've understood it for the last 2,000 years, right? And so uh, the danger with that is that, we're, is that biblical meaning is always left up in the air. 
it's always left up uh, to you know me and my perception of what the human author intended. Whereas, if you take the scriptures as a unit, scripture being the infallible interpreter of the scriptures, you can know the divine meaning through the Word of God itself. I, I, I don't need to I don't need to necessarily know what uh, what David's intent was. Uh, I don't need to you know. Y- y- and you think of you know other other situations, the Pharisees. What were the Pharisees, what was Satan's intent in quoting Scripture? What were the Pharisees' intent in, in quoting Scripture and using, and, and using Scripture against our Lord? So, um, you know, I don't need to know everyone's intent involved in order to derive the, the full sense of the text. Um, I need to know the text. I need to know the Scriptures. Um, and, and I need to know the mind of God as it's revealed in the Scriptures. Um, not necessarily the mind of the human author. Sometimes the mind of the human author is just completely off limits. Um, did Job, I mean, do we, there are some books we, we don't know who the author was. Um, do we know for a fact that, uh, that, that, uh, who wrote Job, right? And, and, and does that even matter? Um, uh, do we know for a fact who, uh, uh, who wrote, um, I don't know, there, you know, think about uh, uh, the gospel according to Matthew. It's, it's traditionally ascribed to Matthew, but, uh, but do we know who, who actually wrote the gospel according to Matthew? I, I, I think tradition bears accurate witness. I, I think Matthew wrote the gospel according to Matthew, but again, we're limited to biblicist categories here, and if that's the case, uh, how do we discern Matthew's intention? if we can't even know if that's who wrote Matthew, right? And so there are all sorts of questions that that raises. Um, this, the third one, solo scriptura, uh, the significance of any biblical text can be understood without reliance on creeds, confessions, historical church traditions. So in, in one sense, I grant that uh, the biblical text can be understood without reliance on creeds, confessions, historical church traditions, and so on. Um, the early church, I mean, prior to the Nicene Creed, for example, um, understood Scripture enough to produce the Nicene Creed. And so, in a sense, this is this is correct. Um, but we got to ask the question, who does it apply to? Uh, does it apply to the, to the church at large? Um, and does it apply to, you know, Christians doing theology and communion with one another? Uh, or does it just apply to the individual? Because I would say that the individual definitely and most certainly absolutely needs accountability as they approach the text of Scripture. At bare minimum, they need friends. They need brothers and sisters that they can bounce their ideas off and, and, and their theological conclusions off of. Um, but they also, they also need to have... Uh, you know, help in interpreting the Bible. Um, perhaps not in the perspicuous, you know, uh, matters of salvation, but there are places in Scripture that, you know, are d- very difficult to understand. And and God has appointed ministers of the gospel on purpose, and he's done so for the purposes of, of teaching and explaining the text of Holy Scripture. And, uh, you know, creeds, confessions uh, have been have been born out of that theological work uh, of the church as a whole, and so I think they're useful in terms of understanding Scripture. Does a person need a creed to understand uh, 
how to be saved from the Holy Scriptures? No. Uh, uh, but does a does a person uh, need a creed or a confession uh, such that they can summarize what they believe from from the Scriptures? Yes, I would say so. Uh, do they need uh, a creed and and or a confession in terms of remaining accountable to uh, to the biblical truth and, and not deviating from it uh, on the basis of their own subjectivized interpretations? Yes, I think so. Uh, even local churches need, you know, confessions are churchly documents, and so churches need confessions to not only state and make known what is believed there, but also to keep account of their doctrine, to protect their doctrine, to, uh, to protect their pulpits, and so on. And so, um, you know, to, to scoot all that aside as, as, you know, these things that God in his kind providence has given us to protect and guard the doctrine that's been delivered to us once for all through the Holy Scriptures, I think is just an incredibly dangerous thing to do. Um, and so uh, that's, uh, uh, that's really just the first part of, of the paper here, and I'm kind of at time. I didn't want to be on here more than 30 minutes, and I'm at 33 minutes. Um the nature of secondary sources, uh, I go through that, and then I give a brief exegetical case for secondary sources. I would just say on the nature of secondary sources that when we talk about secondary, not secondary sources, but secondary authorities or subordinate authorities, uh, we're not talking about anything that adds to Scripture in terms of, you know, biblical revelation. We're not talking about new revelation that, addend, uh, that uh, uh, amends Scripture. We're talking about uh, faithful witnesses to the meaning of God's word. Uh, so a you know a creed can be a faithful witness to the meaning of scriptural uh, data. Confessions can be a, a faithful witness to the meaning of scriptural data. So these things aren't new forms of revelation, nor do they improve uh, through additional revelation what has already been revealed or anything like that. Rather, they are. Uh, testis veritatis, faithful witnesses that uh, that help us to uh, remain biblical in our understanding, uh, and so that's very different from the Roman Catholic view of tradition and their uh, their very their 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 other authorities that they set alongside Scripture which would say that those other authorities, in addition to Scripture, have a revelatory value and bear an additional revelatory load alongside Scripture, and they, they teach things that are not in Scripture. That, that is uh, a defining characteristic of, of Roman Catholicism that uh, has always been rejected. Uh, nevertheless, you know, when we're looking at, uh, you know, the orthodoxy of, of uh, you know, Reformed theology— uh, we're looking at a, a proper placement of tradition and secondary authorities rather than, as the biblicist would, would seem to want it, rather than destroying all of those or moving all of those aside in favor of our own kind of exegetical fancies. So hopefully this was helpful. Uh, again, I'm over time, so if this, if this was helpful, uh, I would appreciate uh, a like and a share. I, I'm going to publish this article uh, soon. I think it's, it's pretty much finished and then you'll be able to read that over on uh, thebaptistbroadcast.com. God bless.